Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with two-time World Series champ and one of the most feared sluggers in the history of the game, the Cobra, Dave Parker. Well hit, deep to right center field, way back, home run, National League leads. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Uh, today on the show, we got a seven-time All-Star, two-time World Series champ. It was the MVP of the National League in 1978. Threw in a few batting titles, too, in 77 and 78. He's got a new book out. Cobra, a life of baseball and brotherhood. He is the Cobra. Ladies and gentlemen, Dave Parker. Dave, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Nice to hear from you. It's good to hear from you. This is this is old school for me. You got to realize. Back in the day when you were starting in Pittsburgh, uh, my dad was playing with the Phillies. And, and, man, when the big bad buckos would come to town, me and my brother – would sit around. That's a golden age for us, but we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. There's a lot of great nicknames in the game of baseball. But I was thinking about it. Cobra's got to be at the top of the list. Where'd it come from? Well, you came from a boxer by the name of Reza Charles, who was a Cincinnati uh, native, and he was uh, the world champ. And uh, when I came to Pittsburgh, they just identified me as the Cincinnati Cobra, so I picked it up from there. It's pretty cool. I, I mean, I, you know, my the, the biggest nickname I had was Booney, and that wasn't a big deal because my dad was Booney, my brother's Booney, but Cobra, that's pretty cool. Uh, I want to go back to what I alluded to in the opening. I want to talk about those those '70s Pirates teams and. You know, it was the time of We Are Family. It was the Big Red Machine. Uh, it was the Phillies. Uh, that was the golden age for me. Talk about those 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 pirate teams in the 70s. And, man, some, some great players, and I remember them vividly. You know, the Sanguians and Stargills, Madlock, uh, to Colby. I remember Bibby and Blylevin. I remember as a little kid, you guys would come to town. It's like, you guys were mean. It was kind of scary. Tell me about those pirate days. Well, we, we were a flamboyant team. I mean, we had good players, but, you know, we uh, were kind of jazzy. And uh, we had Stardew, who was the captain of the squad. He uh, kind of kept everything under control. Doc Ellis probably was a little bit before your time. But Doc Ellis was a, a, a great pitcher. He says he threw a no-hitter on acid. So, you know, that gives you an idea of how the Doc was. But uh, we had some guys that never said die. We would come back from being seven, eight, eight runs down and end up winning games like it was just normal. Were those – those years, those 70s years, and like I said, I'm partial to it because that was my childhood. Uh, the teams were – and there, you had those epic Dodger teams uh, with that, you know, kind of iconic infield. You had the Phillies who ended up winning the World Series in 80. You had some good Expos teams that not too many people talk about. Obviously, the big red machine. For you – was that was that one of the more favorite times of your career? Those seventies years. 
Yeah, the 70s, the years you're talking about was um, Eastern Division Championship and rivalries, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, L.A. Uh, we had serious rival rivalries then, and uh, Philadelphia used to be a dogfight. Every time we went in there, it seemed like we were playing for something. They had Steve Carlton with the unhittable slider, uh, Larry Boer, your dad. Matter of fact, I, I think I broke John Oak's uh, collarbone, and your dad took that job away from me. While That's right, early seventies. Yep. Right. So you know we uh, played each other hard, and I think each team kind of resembled what the city was about—hard working, blue collar cities. And and you talk about those Pirates team as you had a flair to you, and and you had about eighteen uniforms back when. Back before there were, you know, nowadays different. You know, every kid's got flashy shoes. They've got about 10 different unis each. They have certain tops for certain nights of the week. But those Pirates teams, you were kind of unique. You were the only team. And, and I was always wondering, which ones are they going to wear today? The well, hats we were uh, had about 12 combinations. So we had a variety of uh, uniforms to wear. And I used to like the all black ones with the yellow socks and the yellow hat. That was my favorite. That's back when we wore stirrups. The the guys today don't know anything about stirrups and, and garters that held up your stirrups. That kind of the golden age. Um, I want to hear about the Cobra before is the Cobra. Let's talk about you growing up. I know you were born in Mississippi. Uh, but you grew up in the Cincinnati area right across from, I believe it was Crosley Field. Now, you played for the Reds later in your career. I played for the Reds for five years in, in the mid-90s. And uh, a guy by the name of Joe Nuxall, you know, he's no longer with us, but everybody who follows Reds baseball knows exactly who Nuxy is. He would tell me stories about Crosley Field, but uh, by the time I got there, you know, I had no recollection. I could only envision what it was like. Uh, what was that childhood like for you? Well, it was great. I mean, I lived the street over from Crosley. I was always over there hustling baseballs, and uh, it was a part of my hustle. I used to watch Frank Robinson in BDP hit 30, 40 balls out of the park. Vader Pinson was uh, uh, a great hitter, too. I was there when Pete came uh with uh, the Reds when Pete Rose made his introduction. I had a chance to see that. So baseball was a, a big part of my life, and Crosley Field was basically where I uh, fell in love with baseball. But I also read a little bit about you when preparing for this, and uh, football was your favorite sport growing up. Right. I uh, love that physical contact, and uh, I uh, was a tailback, and I had good open field moves and had uh, a lot of power. I could run the ball up the middle, run the ball between the tackles, and uh, I got hurt my senior year, and that kind of threw a damper on uh, the football. But uh, it was a blessing in the because I couldn't have played 19 years of football, and I ended up having a pretty good baseball career. Yeah, you did. In uh, 1970, you end up being a 14th-round pick uh, for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and you end up signing, and uh, 
take me through the the being coming out of high school and and i i came out of college uh i went to usc and i signed as a junior in college but coming out of high school at 18 years old uh how was that adjustment going from high school baseball all of a sudden you're in pro ball you're expected to play 142 games in a row we've had a lot of guys on this podcast and we've gone through it I, I just want to hear how it was for you that adjustment from from kid to now it's real and now this is what i do for a living well it was uh, i was fortunate to have good people around me like a star who i mentioned earlier and doc ellis and some of the guys really helped me adjust uh, it was fun because uh, I didn't know if I was going to make it or not. You know, I was just out there having a good time, having as much fun as I could. And uh, as I moved up to higher A ball, I, I started getting a little more serious because I saw that from what Scars and them was, was showing me and what other players were, were trying to do. So uh, it was uh, fun. It was a adjustment, but it was fun. So you, you relatively quickly get to the big leagues. You make your debut in 73. But 75 is the real year where you kind of establish yourself as an elite player. You hit 308, 25, 101. Uh, mm-hmm. 77 and 78, you go back-to-back batting titles. 70, 78, you win the MVP. Pretty pretty special year all around. And 77 to 79, you win three gold gloves. Um, so at this at this stage of the game, I mean, you're Dave Parker. You're, you're, you're one of the best players in the world. And you win the World Series, 79. You beat the Orioles. Um, I just want to walk me through that from becoming a young player, growing up at Crosley Field. Now all of a sudden – you're one of the best players in the game. How was that? It was something that I believed that I were. You know, I believed that I was the best player in the game. And uh, my approach to baseball is, has always have been one of thinking I was the best and wanting to compete. And uh, I wanted to compete. And I wanted to do it at every level. I felt that I was the best player, and I tried to, to display that when I was on the field. And what I remember as a kid, too, I don't know if you know this, but 79, kind of a famous clip, you making that throw from right field in Seattle. I was at that game. My dad had made that team, and he brought me along, and I was there for that throw. So it's still to this day when it comes out, I said, I was a little kid at that game. But uh, all your years – you know, Dave Parker, not only known as a great baseball player, but you're always known as, hey, what? who's got the best arm in the game? Parker's name's always in there, uh, especially from that generation. Who had the best arm? Ellis Valentine had a cannon. Yeah, he did. And uh, nobody ever talked about him. But I, I saw we were in a, the All-Star game in 77, I believe. And uh, we were throwing from right field. We had Winfield, Reggie Smith, uh, Ellis Valentine, and myself. And I didn't. I had on gym shoes, so I didn't have traction, so I couldn't really show out. But uh, Ellis Valentine had a, a arm that he could throw the ball from right field to home plate, knee high. And Reggie Smith was throwing balls that was exploding halfway to their target. Uh, that was the best group of 
outfielders that I've ever been around. And when we talk about you, you know, being being the uh, at least one of the best players in the game at that time, in 1979, you were the highest paid player. You're the first player to make a million dollars. You know, I look at the game today, Dave, and man, what what a what a blessing. The, the players of today's generation had it all started, you know, even before your generation, my grandfather's generation, pass it on to you to think in 79, you were making a million dollars and you were the highest paid player. And then I got to go through my, you know, my generation. I, I retired in the, in the mid two thousands and I never complained because we were reaping the rewards of what you guys laid the groundwork for. And, and I, you know, I was fortunate to make the money that we made. But now I'm looking at these kids today. It's amazing. And I'm thinking if it's amazing for me, somebody like you who who came well before me and was the highest paid player at one point. Uh, does it kind of boggle your mind now to watch these kids and see the money that's that's in the game of baseball? Yeah, and it trips me out because uh, the money I made is pocket change. They carry that in their pockets. You know, uh, two hundred million, three hundred million, four hundred million. That's that's mind-boggling. But uh, it's whatever the market can bear. I'm sure they wouldn't be giving it if they couldn't afford to. So uh, I'm still waiting on these guys that's making all this money. If you're listening, I'm waiting on my ten percent. <laughs> I, but I'll tell you what I want a percentage of that too <laughs> you earned it <laughs> you made some noise alright so we're going to we're going to move on we're going to go to the Reds years you signed with uh, you signed as a free agent with the Reds in 1984, you're gonna you're gonna play there for four years 85 and 86 you're an all-star once again and this is what's interesting to me that I that I found doing uh going over this interview in 1985 i believe you were a part of the home run derby and i think it was the first home run derby and you won it i put i i participated in two in the 2000s i didn't do very well uh, i got beat by sammy sosa and then the next time i i almost kind of almost embarrassed myself in chicago but i want to hear this is back in and man this is this is groundbreaking they never had a home run derby they have it you're in the first one. You win it. Tell me about that. Yeah, it was uh, in uh, Minnesota was where we had it. And uh, Winfield was uh, my main competition. And uh, I think Gary Carter might have been there. But uh, Winfield was the guy that I had to fight off. And I hit about 21 home runs. I kept hitting that green baggie. And uh, Winfield fell short a couple times. But uh, that was just competing again. You know, that's what baseball is all about. So your Reds years, a lot of success. And, and as we talked in, uh, you know, off uh, off camera per se before, and I, and I mentioned Eric Davis. We had Eric Davis, who was a teammate of mine, teammate of yours uh, with the Reds. And I asked him, I said, who's the biggest influence in your, in your baseball life? And, and without, he didn't even have to think about it. He said right away, he said the Cobra, he said Dave Parker. He was like a father to me. Uh, Eric was, he's a buddy of mine, a great teammate. Tell me a little bit about you and Eric Davis. 
Well, Eric was uh, a student of the game. You know, he uh, paid attention. He was very easy to coach. And uh, I, I, I fell in love with him as, as an individual. And uh, he kept me young. And I taught him everything I knew about baseball. And uh, it showed because he went on to have a great career, both in the American League and the National League. And uh, Eric is like my son. And after uh, after 87, uh, you move on again, and you're traded to the A's for a young Jose Rijo, who – ends up doing some big things for the Cincinnati Reds, but you're going to, you're going to the A's, you're going, it's bash brothers time. You're, you're kind of the, at, at this point, you're the, uh, you're the elder, you're the veteran there. You got some young guys. Uh, you, you're playing for, for Tony LaRussa and 89 happens and you got a chance to win your second ring. You got the Bay bridge series. Uh, and, and I believe you're DHing for the first time in your career. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. How was that for you? And tell me about that 89 and winning that second ring. Was it as special as that first one? It was uh, just as special. I mean, the first one is nice, and the second one is nicer. And I did it with a team that was an all-star team. We had Ricky Henderson leading off, Connie Langford hitting second, Conseco hitting third, I hit fourth, McGuire hit fifth, Dave Henderson hit sixth, Steinbach hit seventh, Tony Phillips hit eighth, and Walt Weiss hit ninth. And that's an all-star team. We had teams that didn't even want to come watch us hit BP because of what we would display as a unit. And how about that uh, How about that earthquake in 89? What were you thinking when that, that happened? I just went through there about 15 minutes before, and uh, we got got there and got dressed and was stretching, and all of a sudden we get a rumble, and uh, the people started yelling and screaming. You know what a way to set a World Series off, but nobody knew how much tragedy was done, and uh, we found out that you know they had had the earthquake and the Bay Bridge had collapsed. And uh, we started realizing how much tragedy uh, had taken place. And it turned from the World Series to, you know, worrying about the people that could have been hurt, survivors. And uh, I'm glad we finished it because uh, Oakland needed something to uh, bring them back to reality. Yeah, because I remember I was a shoot. I was a sophomore in college during that series, and I remember I was going to school in L.A. And you know that, of course, I was glued to the World Series. And uh, I, we had a, another guy on the Boone podcast recently was Gary Thorne. Uh, you know the the iconic announcer. It's been in the game for forty years, and he was there covering that series, and and he told me about it, and he just he said it was unbelievable. Didn't know what to do. Everything went dark. He went home, but he had to keep covering what was going on. Didn't know when they were going to play. Uh, like you said, I mean that that bridge, that two tiered bridge collapsed, and it, it was just kind of a surreal moment, I think, in history as we as we go through, but but definitely baseball history. 
I want to I want to touch on a little bit before we move on from your Oakland days, but playing your whole career and being a right fielder and being a gold glove right fielder. And all of a sudden you're getting to a point where you're asked to be the designated hitter. Uh, I never had to DH, but, I, but I played with some great ones and I played with Edgar Martinez and I watched his routine, you know, for us. And, you know, as a position player, we're not going to hit all the time and kind of a, kind of a, a solace for us is be able to go out on defense and and take something away from the opposition when we're not hitting all of a sudden your full-time role is a dh did you find that uh difficult or did you kind of ease into the position uh as as far as preparing for each it's almost like you're pinch hitting four times a game because you're not going to the outfield was that an easy transition for you or or did you have a little difficulty with it it was easy I like I love to hit, so I didn't mind it. I um, would get loose by running the, the stadium steps uh, when I had that bat coming, and uh, I would call and check on my kids, check on my wife in between the bats. So it was just uh, something routine. Yeah, I always find it uh, talking to the guys at DH, like like Edgar. I told you was a teammate of mine for a lot of years. And he, was t- and he used to tell me, Booney, man, when they first asked me to DH, there's no way I was doing it. Because as you know, Edgar Martin, he came up as a third baseman. He said, but once I got into my routine and, and I learned how to do, with it, do it, he said, I could prepare and I was ready. And I knew how to do it. I think a little bit different. You were, you were kind of a more, you, were a, you had more uh, time in, you had more experience. I, I think it happened to Edgar at a at a younger age in his twenties, where you'd been there, done that, pretty much everything that you can do in a baseball career. But it, but it's fascinating to me, you know, talking to to Frank Thomas when he stopped playing first base. Uh, it, it's different to hear different perspectives. Paul Molitor, I, I had on the show, and he talked about it a little bit. But it's always interesting to hear different perspectives. So 1990, you go to Milwaukee. You're 39 years old. You still hit 289, 21, 92. So at 39, you're still getting it done. At this at this stage of your life, are you looking around going, wow, how much longer am I going to be able to play? Because uh, at 39, those are pretty pretty lofty numbers. Tell me about that a little bit in the end, in, in the end uh, of your career, starting with Milwaukee. Well, Milwaukee was, was good because I had young players. They kept me young. Shetfield uh, was uh, a guy that I took on the wing, and I worked with him to finish polishing his career. I, I taught him a lot, and uh, they were the reason that I had the success that I had because I was keeping up with those guys. I wasn't going to be embarrassed. I wanted two more years. And uh, I was working to get two more years, but I only got one year out of the deal in Milwaukee. Then I went to California. And uh, that's when things started going south. Yeah, for me, I don't know what it was for you, but for me, man, my legs were just not there anymore. And I remember in the end for me, just taking my position nine innings a night was like, whoa. And and, and you forget, <laughs> you know, you forget about when you were a kid and you had the older players looking at you like, wow, why is that so easy for you? And then all of a sudden 
you're that elder statesman looking at him going, well, these knees have been around a lot. And and especially back in the 70s, you were playing on those hard turfs. And, and it was pretty much all the teams we talked about, Cincinnati, Philly, Montreal, Pittsburgh, they all had that hard artificial turf. And, you know, sooner than later, it will catch up with you. But for you, man, it, it took a long time to catch up with you. You retire after the 91 season. And, you know, I, I read, and, it, and it's pretty cool. You get inducted into the Reds Hall of Fame in 2014. When you got that call, how special was that for you? It was very special. Uh, the Reds uh, was a team that I always wanted to play for. Any kid that played in a city that had a major league team wanted to play for their team. And uh, I was no different. I just wanted to be a red leg, and then for them to make me a Hall of Fame member was a, a great honor. One that I I got in the middle of my trophy case now. Uh, so it was a it was a big thrill for me, and it's uh, something that I, I hold very dear to my heart. And what do you think? I want to I want to I want to just point blank ask. We had uh, Mike Schmidt on the on the podcast recently, obviously a slugger that came up right around the time you did. Uh, Who are the greatest sluggers of your generation? I know you mentioned Pops Stargell. He's definitely in that conversation. But who are the guys that Dave Parker come out and go, I want to watch this guy hit. And it can be it can span your whole career. Mike Smith was uh, definitely one of the, the top power hitters uh, in the 70s. Uh, he uh, was consistent, too. I mean, he didn't only hit him on occasion. He hit him with regularity. And he had some big gangs in Chicago. Uh, he uh, hit for average, too. He was definitely the best third baseman in baseball. And... Uh, I, I enjoy competing against him. All right, we got and and we have this in common. You just you just wrote a new book. It's Cobra: A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood. Uh, where can the people listen to this podcast? Where can they pick it up? And and how was your? Give me a little bit of your experience in writing the book. I wrote a book about six or seven years ago, and it, it was interesting. It was educational. I had a ghostwriter, and it was a process, but uh, it, it was pretty cool in the end. Uh, tell me about your experience writing the book, and then tell the audience where they can pick up your book. Well, it was great. I mean, because uh, I had a chance to, to finally get my take on, on me as a player and and pass it on to the public. And uh, it's about relationships. It's about relationships that you have with teammates. Uh, I'm froze for a second. But uh, it's about relationships, and I just build on that. I took me and Stardew's friendship and turned it into uh, one where he took me on the wing when I – First got to the major leagues, Doc Ellis took his uh, friendship and made it into a relationship that was one that he was like a brother. And uh, Bill Madlock ended up being my brother-in-law, and we had a, a friendship that 
was a relationship that lasts forever. And this is what this is all about. Brotherhood. Uh, you mentioned Bill Madlock. He was one of the, as a kid, watching him. That He could hit. He could really hit. He won, I think he won a batting title or two, too. Well, Cobra, just, how many did he win? Four. Four. Yeah, I remember. I, I remember watching him going. That that Madlock, he could rake, and uh, yeah. another another fond memory. Well, Cobra, I really appreciate you coming on the Boone Podcast. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I wish you the best with the with the book and in life. And and uh, this is really cool. You know, getting to getting to talk to you today briefly. What we do here on the Boone Podcast at the end of each one is we bring the voice of the Boone Podcast, Dan Levy, back to ask a question of you, Dave, from the fans. Dano. Hi, Dave. This question comes from Mike Z in Bakersfield, and he wants to know, Dave, who was the coolest dude on the We Are Family Pirates? Can I put myself in there? Of course. You go without saying, of course. (laughs) No, the coolest dude... I think that would be something that the whole team would take play in it because we were flamboyant and uh, we were the team of the 70s. No other team could do the things that we did and nobody had as much flash as we had. All right. Mr. Dave Parker, thank you so much for coming on the Boone Podcast. We appreciate it. Okay, and you can pick the book up at Dave Parker 39 Foundation, Amazon, Walmart, Barnes & Noble. All right, thank you so much. We appreciate you coming on, sir. You got it, Dave. Thank Thank you. you. Mailbag. All right, Brett, you know that sound. It means it is time for the Brett Boone Mailbag. Shall we roll? Let's roll. All right, this one comes from Mike from Reno, Brett what is the best and worst uniforms of all time, and how would you look in a baby blue Phillies uniform? Mike and Reno. Best and worst. Man. Okay, the worst. The worst has got to be. I, You know, people talk about those white socks with the shorts. It, it got to be the worst of all time. Um, best of all time. I got to go. I got to go with our guest. I got to go with those pirates, those pirate unis. Uh, of those the killer B uniforms are sweet. And and it's, uh, man, the hats, the hats with the, they had the circles around it. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go with the pirates whole whole their whole wardrobe of the 70s. But the worst, definitely the White Sox. Uh, I believe the White Sox in the 70s when they broke the shorts out. Shorts don't work. No, that was a rough luck. Definitely a rough luck. All right, let's head back on in. And this one comes from Fran in Longmeadow. Brett, I love this show on Mother's Day with your mom, Sue Boone. What did you get mom for Mother's Day? Whoa, I was traveling on Mother's Day, so I wasn't home. But I got, what did I get mom? So you broke her heart on Mother's Day. I'll tell you, I'm going to sound like a cheap wad over here. I got mom a dozen roses and a really nice card. No gift. Aww. Yeah, come on. No gift. Sue Boone gets no gift from the what chosen am I, one? What am I going to get a mom that has everything? 
a Mercedes, like I did. Like I did, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's going to do it for this year. Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director and producer of the Boom Podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content all gets laid out by Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again next time. See ya.